Father God, we're grateful this morning. We're so thankful that we can celebrate together the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his perfect life. We thank you that he went to that cruel cross and bore our sins on the cross. We thank you that he was buried. We thank you that he rose victoriously from the grave on that third day that when they came to the tomb where Jesus had been laid, his body could not be found. We thank you, Lord, that you conquered death and came to life. We thank you that you grant life to all who trust in your name. Lord, as we've gathered for worship uh, this morning and united our hearts on the resurrection of our Savior, Lord, we pray that as we go to your word, that you would meet with us in a special way this morning, that you'd encourage our hearts, that you'd lift um, our countenance, that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, Winneka Bible Church, and happy Resurrection Sunday. It's good to be with you uh, this morning. And so we're going to look to, to God's Word together. Uh, so glad that you and your family have, have gathered with us. And if you don't already, I'd encourage you to get your Bible open to Revelation chapter 1. So if you haven't turned there yet, turn there now, Revelation uh, chapter 1. And as you're turning there, I just want to just review a little bit of our series, our Easter series that we called The Night is One. Uh, two weeks ago, we were in John chapter 1, and we looked at what we called the traits of the light. We explored what John told us about Jesus, who was the light that was coming into this world, that he would be the light of the world, and that he would be the kind of light that darkness could not overcome him. Uh, literally, Jesus would push back, as it were, the darkness. And then we meditated together um, on verse 14 of John chapter 1, where John tells us that this word, this eternal one, this son of God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And then John says, we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, <clears throat> full of grace and truth. And we saw in that the mantle and the mission and we saw the majesty of Jesus Christ, our Savior, as he took to himself human flesh in the likeness of man. And as John said, we beheld his glory. And then last week we saw Jesus say he was the light of the world. At the end of a story in which the light shone into the darkness of an unexpected recipient. There was a lady who had been caught in the act of adultery. <clears throat> and the Pharisees and the scribes had brought her in, uh, rudely interrupted Jesus in the temple, and cast this lady uh, into the middle of, of, of that meeting and in, essentially interrupted Jesus. And Jesus beautifully and wonderfully deals with the Pharisees' condemnation and then restores this lady and extends forgiveness to her and encourages her to walk in the way that he has shown, the path that he has shown. And so we saw 
the truth of the light. We saw that Jesus not only has all the qualities of light that shines in darkness, but we saw that Jesus is the truth of the light. And today we're going to go to our third message in this series, which we've called The Triumph of the Light. The Triumph of the Light. There's a very curious story in John chapter 11 of, and, G, and John tells us a story of Jesus that he receives a message about his good friend Lazarus. And Lazarus has two sisters, Mary and Martha, and they are seeking Jesus' help. And Jesus, uh, at the time that he hears of this message, he tells his followers, his disciples, that the sickness that Lazarus has is not going to lead to death. He says this, it is for God's glory so that the Son of God would be glorified through it. And Jesus then does an unexpected thing. He delays his departure and this request for help for an additional two days. And all that time, the disciples are kind of wondering what's going on. They themselves are a little fearful of going back to uh, Jerusalem, to Bethany. And so they're hesitating. But then Jesus does finally come. And when he gets there, Lazarus has already been dead for four days. And as he's sort of coming towards the town, Martha, Lazarus's sister, comes out to greet Jesus. And she says to Jesus, Jesus, it's so good to see you. If you'd been here, my brother Lazarus would not have died. And Jesus' response to her is remarkable. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Then he says to Martha, do you believe this? And Martha affirms in her answer, her belief in Christ. She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into this world. And so they have that conversation. The story continues and Jesus now comes to the graveside of Lazarus. And the Bible tells us something absolutely remarkable that Jesus stands at the graveside of Lazarus and he weeps. He weeps. In fact, for you kids out there that are watching today, if I was to ask you the question, what is the shortest verse in the Bible? It's John chapter 11 and verse 35. It may be the shortest verse in the Bible, but it's one of the most profound verses in the Bible. Jesus wept. So here's my question. Why, knowing if you know the story, what's going to happen later in the story, why does Jesus weep? Why does Jesus weep at the graveside of his friend? And here's a larger question for us this morning. Why do any of us have to weep at the graveside of our loved ones? Where does this death thing come from anyway? Why is it such a stain? Why is it such a curse? What will become of it? Is there any pathway through it? 
And I think to understand or to get a handle around some of those questions, we have to go back a little bit to the beginning to see where death came from. Do you remember the garden? Do you remember that God blessed Adam and Eve in the garden? Told them that they could have any of the fruit on any of the trees in the garden. That the whole thing was set up for their blessing and happiness. But there was one tree that they were not to take of. In fact, God said this to Adam and Eve. That the day that you eat of that tree, you will surely die. But in comes dysfunction and distortion and deception. In comes the devil. And he comes alongside Eve and he deceives her. And he tells her, hey, God's keeping something from you here. Eve looks upon the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and, she, and her eyes delight. She, she, it looks very appealing to her. And she desires to have the wisdom of knowing good from, from evil. And Eve actually even articulates back to the devil what God had said to her and what God had warned them to do or not do. She tells him that the devil, she tells the devil, no, God said we mustn't take of that fruit because the day we do, we will surely die. And so we know the rest of the story. She takes of the fruit and she shares it with her husband, Adam. And now they're in shame and disobedience to the one true God who had given them everything. And they hid themselves from God because they were in shame and embarrassed because of their sin. And they isolated themselves and began to blame one another. Adam blamed Eve and Eve blamed the devil. And this curse of death descended, which is why Romans chapter 5 says this, Therefore, just as one sin entered the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men, for all have sinned. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 says, The wages of sin is death. So this is where this death curse comes from. But the question I have for us this morning is how will this death curse be remedied? How can we be sure when Jesus says he's the light of the world, the light that is not going to be overcome by the darkness, how can we be sure that that is true? How will the night be won? And in Revelation chapter 1, we're going to see a vision and we're going to see a victory that describe how that night is won for us and how the light is not going to be overcome by the darkness. So let's put Revelation chapter 1 in context for just a second. And again, please have your Bible open specifically to verse 17. And we're going to look at verse 17 and 18 together this morning. Now, just in context, John, the apostle, is exiled on the island of Patmos. He was sent there to reduce his influence. He had been the overseer of the churches in Asia Minor. And Jesus suddenly appears to John in a most spectacular vision. First, John sees Jesus standing among seven golden candlesticks which we know later 
are representing the seven churches of Asia Minor and describes him as one like unto the Son of Man. John says he had white, striking white hair. His eyes were like flaming fire. His feet were like brass. His mouth was like a two-edged sword. And when his voice spoke, it was like a thundering waterfall. In his right hand, he held seven stars, holding authority over the churches. And if all of that scene was not overwhelming enough, John says that his face shone like the sun in full strength. Now, I don't know about you, but I remember one time as a kid, I tried to gaze at the sun when it was at full strength. That's not a good idea. And so his face shone like the sun at full strength. Literally, he is the light of the world, the light that is going to push back the darkness, the lights that John talked about in John chapter 1 and verse 4 and 5. So John sees this spectacular vision. And what does he do? How does he respond? Well, John says, verse 17, that I fell at his feet as though dead. Quite frankly, John is overwhelmed with Christ standing before him. Can you imagine the absolute blazing, holy glory of a resurrected Jesus Christ? Now, if you know a little bit more about John in Scripture, his response here to Jesus may seem a little strange. Here's why. I mean, you might think when he saw the face of Jesus, his master, he'd be overwhelmed with joy or ecstatic bliss. I mean, he was the beloved disciple. He was part of the inner circle. He was a part of the very heart ministry of Jesus. He was the one who placed his head on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. He was the one who stood at the cross as Jesus cried out his last words and turned to John and asked John to care for his mother after he'd passed. He was the one now who has been sent to this Isle of Patmos. He is the one who is, has a special relationship with the Messiah, the one whom Jesus loved. So why would John respond with such fear? Why was he so overwhelmed and frightened at the presence of a Savior who he knew intimately? Friends, John was seeing Jesus in a new and unspeakable way. Literally, friend, he was seeing Jesus with his unveiled glory. And when you see God unveiled, friends, this morning, everything changes. But how does Jesus respond to John's response? We see it in verse 17. The first words out of Jesus' mouth are not condemnation to John. He says to John, fear not. What words of comfort that would have been as John was overwhelmed by this experience. 
This is the compassion of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is our Lord. And this word, John, fear not, is not the first time John has heard that comforting voice, fear not. If you remember, up on the mountain, when John and Peter went and saw the glory of Jesus Christ unveiled, it was temporary at that time, Jesus And they were overwhelmed with it. Jesus said this to John at that time. And Peter, Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not have fear. And they lifted up their eyes and saw no one but Jesus. But these comforting words were accompanied by a comforting touch. John tells us that he placed his hand upon me. Fear not, the placing of of the hand. And then John says this. Jesus says to John, and it's kind of a paradox, I am dead. So fear not, I died and am alive forevermore. Now there's quite a bit of mystery in this statement by Jesus. How how is it possible for the self-existent eternal God to die? Well, we said a couple of weeks ago that when Jesus came and became flesh, what we called the incarnation, when Jesus took to himself human flesh, he took to himself a real and actual humanity. Jesus was a real man. And so he took to himself, by taking to himself this full humanity, made it possible for Jesus to enter the portal of death as a man, as a perfect man, but as a man. So what may feel like a paradox to us, the one who died, he says, but I am alive forevermore, is possible with the Lord Jesus Christ. He became dead, it says here in this text. We know that he became man, and as man, he passed into, in his human existence, He passed into physical death. He went through the process of death. His humanity died. But friends, this morning, he never ceased to be God in that dying. In his physical death, we know that Jesus went into the tomb. And as he went into the tomb, he took, as it were, the enemy's stronghold back to the garden as Satan had tempted and tested Adam and Eve. And it looked like darkness would prevail. It looked like the enemy had won a victory. It looked like now death would reign over mankind because sin had entered the world. Jesus enters the very curse of death in his humanity. He takes, he bears in his body on that cross the sin of the world, passes through the portal of death, into eternal life. And this is why he can say, I died, past tense, and am alive forevermore. Friends, this morning, those are powerful, comforting words for you and I. So John has a vision. A vision of a glorified, conquering Messiah. But this passage of Scripture also promises a victory. Look there with me, if you would, in your Bibles, 
at verse 18. He says, Fear not, I'm the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. What does this mean? Well, the keys of death. Let's, let's first think about the words death and Hades. The word death here means, can be translated the grave. The word death here means the place of the death, of the dead. When somebody dies, their body is separated from their spirit. Their body goes into the ground. Their spirit goes to God, goes to the place where God contains or holds your spirit, my spirit, if we are believers at the time of death. One day, we believe because of the promises of Scripture, to be reunited physically with our physical bodies. So this is the place of the dead, as it were. But here is what Jesus is saying in this passage of Scripture. This is the comfort and power of this statement to John. I have the keys of death and Hades. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to hold the keys? So I thought about this. I looked carefully at this passage. There's really two ideas here. Um, If you had the keys to my house or to my car, if I gave you the keys to my house or car, you would have access and you'd also have authority. Those two things. You, You could take the keys and you would have access to my house. And the keys also give you authority to enter into my house. I would, I would be giving you permission to go into my house or to take my car. Kind of like when a mayor of a city of Chicago gives a citizen of our city the keys to the city. They have access and they have authority to the city. So this is the idea of this statement by Jesus. Jesus has the keys, he has access, and he has authority over death and over hell. I said earlier that Jesus passed through death. Literally, Jesus opened the grave by going into it, passing by hell, passing into heaven. Again, passing out of it. Death, again, by rising from the dead and entering back into his eternal glory in the ascension. So this kind of passing and repassing, he proved that he was holding the keys in his hand. His achievements have won the victory of access and authority over sin and over death. And basically, Jesus is telling John something really cool here. Here they are, John. I've got them. I hold the keys of hell and death. And as John gazed at the hands of Jesus, he would have seen that the hand that held the keys of hell and death were the pierced hands. This beautiful picture. This kind of irony, the pierced hands of Jesus had authority and access 
hold the keys of hell and death. This is how the book of Hebrews describes us. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and verse 15. And so Jesus has the keys of death and hell and has authority and access over death and hell and crushes death by passing through it. And what is it about death that Jesus crushed? Literally, what Jesus crushed in the crushing of death was the power of death and was the penalty of death. So that verse I quoted earlier, for the wages of sin is death, the rest of that verse says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Jesus, because he has the keys, he holds the keys, that pierced hand which holds the keys in victory over sin and death, he wins the victory over the power and penalty of sin and death. And he wins that for a people, for you and for me, who by faith put our trust in our Savior Jesus. But Jesus will also one day remove the presence of sin. So he's won the victory over the power and penalty of sin, but one day he will remove us from the presence of sin and oh, how we long for that day. So you could say it this way. Death is almost dead. Back to the story of Lazarus as I close because I never finished that story. As Jesus came to the graveside of Lazarus, and he wept. The scripture says Jesus wept. And there Mary and Martha and there were lots of other people there. They were all seeking to console one another. And upon seeing their grief and the results of death in his friend, Jesus weeps. He's deeply moved. And then asking others to come and gather around. He gives a command that the stone of the grave be removed. But Martha kind of interjects again. She's like, uh, Jesus, Lazarus has been dead for four days. He's going to smell. To which Jesus says this. Did I not tell you that if you believed today, you would see the glory of God? So they took the stone away. Then Jesus looked up and said, when he had said this with a loud voice, he cried, Lazarus, come out. And the most amazing thing happened. The dead man, his friend, Lazarus, came out. His hands and his body and his feet were wrapped in grave clothes. And so Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. What an amazing story of Jesus, the light of the world, pushing back the darkness. 
taking victory, holding the keys of death and the grave and speaking life into Lazarus who had died. And friend, today, Jesus still calls you and I to come out, to come out from the the grave, to come out from the place of the dead and to take off our grave clothes. Jesus still brings life and light and healing to all who will come to him. Jesus is the resurrection and the life, as he told Martha. He who believes in him will live. And even though he dies, whoever lives and believes in him will never die. And Jesus proved that through the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. So one of the questions I have for you today is, do you know this Jesus who raises the dead? Do you know this Jesus who lived a perfect life, who died a sin-bearing death on a cross, who was buried, who rose again victoriously on the third day, who in resurrection power and authority stands as the victorious one. He stands as the one who holds the keys of hell and death, the one who died, the one who is alive forevermore. Do you know this one? Do you know this one who reaches down and places his hand upon us and says, fear not, I am the first and the last. Do you know this Jesus? I pray that you do. Friends, this morning, if you know this Christ, be refreshed in this truth that we have the better promises of a Savior who died, but who is alive forevermore. He crushed death. He raised Lazarus. And he will raise up again all who by faith put their trust in him. His resurrection victory secures your and my resurrection victory if we are in Christ. Today, I pray you are. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the promise of this passage. I thank you, Lord, that you're the living one, that you died, and behold, you are alive forevermore. And you, Lord Jesus, hold the keys of hell and death, that when Lazarus heard your voice, Lazarus come out, he had to obey because you hold the keys of hell and death. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your victory. We thank you that it is a perfect victory. We thank you that you gave up your life willingly to ransom many. I pray this Resurrection Sunday that your people will be encouraged with hope as they think upon this Christ, the Christ whom John saw in a most spectacular vision, that we would be greatly encouraged that this Christ rules and reigns and still holds the keys of hell and death. There is not one inch of this universe that is not under his authority and control. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.